CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's time for Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Another sizzling hot day in Georgia. I hope all of you are going to take good care of yourselves if you have to be outside. If not, stay inside where it's nice and cool, we hope, in your air-conditioned offices, homes, wherever you are. Um, We got a lot to talk about. I want to get right to the panel. Kevin Riley uh, is my partner from the AJC on the Thursday show. You know Kevin Riley. He's the boss, the editor of the Atlanta Journal of Constitution. How are you, Kevin? I'm doing well, Bill. Good morning. It's good to be here with you. And you're right, it's hot out there. It's going to get even hotter as the day goes on. But thank you uh, for being here today. Margaret Coker is back with us, too. She's the editor-in-chief of The Current, uh, which is a great online digital news publication that covers the coast. Uh, She's based in Savannah, but also uh, looks at news uh, from across the state and beyond. Uh, Margaret, people can look at your uh, publication by going to thecurrentga.org. And it's org because you're a nonprofit. That's right. Uh, we have a mission um, to try and uh, dismiss the, um, the inequalities to information in the state of Georgia. So all of our content is free. You never have to pay. Um, come to our site, learn more about the state. Uh, but having said that, I will say it is possible to uh, become a, a subscriber, or at least a supporter of uh, The Current. Um, we all need to be supporting, I think, journalism uh, these days, whether it's a GPB or The Current or wh- wherever uh, people are getting uh, their news. So uh, you can do that at The Current. Um I'm very happy to have uh, two of my colleagues from GPB on the show today, our political reporter, Stephen Fowler, who uh, not only uh, is, uh, uh, has stories that appear on the GPB News website, uh, you hear him on our radio platform, uh, but you also can uh, listen to Battleground Ballot Box, which is a terrific podcast that Stephen has been doing for a couple of years now. And Stephen, that's available on every platform where people get their podcasts, right? It is, and I'm actually putting the finishing touches on this week's episode as soon as we're off the air. Uh, and you've had a busy day. You were out covering the elections the other night. You've done a Battleground Ballot Box, which you're now finishing up. You hosted Morning Edition uh, for us here in Georgia this morning. So I'm really glad that you could uh, take the time to be with us. Thanks, Stephen. Thank you. I saved Donna Lowry for last. Donna Lowry is the host of Lawmakers, and in July, we'll begin hosting a brand new version of Lawmakers on GPB TV called Lawmakers Beyond the Dome. Uh, Donna, I want to give you a chance to mention a little bit more about that, but the reason I saved you for last is to congratulate you. We mentioned on the show the other day that Lawmakers won an Emmy uh, just this past weekend. And that, of course, uh, is a tribute to you and the really wonderful people who put that show together. So uh, congratulations on that, Donna. Thank you so much. You're right. You know, I'm involved with it, but there are lots of others. And, you know, it's a lot of hard work. It is 40 days of live television that we do for lawmakers. And there are people in the studio who are working hard. There are people at the Capitol and everybody coming together. And so I'm really happy that, that that everyone is being recognized with this. And it was from the, you know, NATIS, the National Association of Television Arts and Sciences Southeast. And uh, we are just energized now for it. So I wouldn't say that we're ready for the legislative session to begin because we're energized by the, by the Emmy. We can, we can wait until January, but uh, certainly it is, um, it is great to be recognized for a lot of really hard work um, that we've done on that show. So I'm, I'm thrilled about well, it. It was such a kick to, to uh, hear, hear our name. 
Congratulations again to you and the lawmakers team. Um, Thank all right, you. let's get started on talking about uh, uh, the news. Kevin, I want to start, if I may, since um, many people across the country have been uh, focused on watching the January 6th committee hearings. We'll, we'll have another one today at three o'clock this afternoon. It'll be on all the GPB platforms and CNN, MSNBC, and every other network you can imagine. But Kevin, I just want to briefly uh, say something about an editorial which appeared in the AJC this morning. I'm, if you don't mind, I'm going to read just a little bit of it to you. Character is what you do at great risk when the world is watching. The nation and world were reminded of that this week as Georgians testified before a U.S. House committee investigating the January 6th Capitol insurrection. It was a grave moment for this nation and how we govern ourselves, yet when it counted most, with the American way of democracy in high peril, some Georgians showed the best of what real leadership sometimes demands doing the right thing in rugged circumstances that at times included death threats. And of course, uh, those are really references to uh, Brad Raffensperger, uh, Gabriel uh, Sterling, who testified the other day and held the line against Trump's efforts to overturn the election here, uh, but also Andrea Moss and her mother, Ruby Freeman, election workers who were targeted with fake allegations of putting fake ballots into the Fulton County voting system. Um, so, Kevin, it, it, it's, it, we're, we're glad to see the AJC commending uh, those people for standing up for democracy. Well, thank you, Bill. Thanks for mentioning that. It's been amazing, I think, for all of us here in Georgia to find out that we have a starring role in these, uh, in these hearings, as it turns out. Um, uh, and uh, some of our stars have certainly been heroes, and uh, some others uh, of our stars maybe a little bit less so. And I think we're going to see more and more of that. But uh, Georgia really, really is, is one of the most important stories in this entire investigation. Stephen, I'm curious, and this is all pure speculation, of course, but um, Raffensperger's gotten so a lot of praise. Uh, he certainly had a starring role uh, the other day. Um, and, and I can't help but wonder how this is going to position him uh, in the general election battle that he's now going to fight against B. Wynn, who won the Democratic nomination in the runoff the other day. I just wonder whether he has um, put himself um, and, and the committee has put him in a position where he might be seen as a an anti-Trump uh, moderate Republican, which is certainly not true of Brad Raffensperger. Well, it certainly takes the wind out of the sails of the argument that uh, if you don't vote for B. Win in the November election, then the fate of democracy might be in jeopardy, because we've already seen once that Raffensperger follows the law, goes by the books, isn't going to put a thumb on the scale of the election results. But also, you have to remember, you know, everyone on this show is very plugged into politics, the ebbs and flows, the ups and downs, and even people that listen to the show. But to the average person, that the information that might trickle down to them from this hearing and from everything else that Brad Raffensperger's done is that he defended the election results. He didn't overturn the election and says Georgia's elections are safe, secure, and trusted. So he definitely is one of the Republicans that stands in the best position heading into this fall because of his actions. And I think this hearing further solidified the fact that regardless of who wins the Secretary of State's race this November, Georgia's elections, at least the chief election official, would be in good hands. Margaret? Um, I'll be the contrarian on this topic because you know there, there are several ongoing lawsuits that Raffensperger has named as part of um, that are trying to adjudicate whether elections are free, fair, and whether Dominion voting machines um, actually are trustworthy. And um, yes, he stood up um, at a moment in our American history where where it really mattered. But he's also a politician, and he's played politics throughout this spring to win a pretty um, a pretty tough primary. And there are his detractors in the state who say that he has soft peddled some of the ongoing um, uh, election investigations that date back to 2020. I mean, down here in Coffee County, there are real concerns about whether or not 
um, uh, county GOP members and leaders um, tried to undermine uh, election results in that county. Uh, the Secretary of State's office has an open investigation into the goings on there and still has not ruled about whether or not his own party members in Coffee County helped to undermine those election results. So right. I think that when you are um, when you are a, a Georgia Democrat, there I mean people always have skeletons in the closet. There's always ways around um, uh, to to chip away at credibility and reputational issues. And I'm sure that the win and everybody else are going to um, leverage that for all they can. So um, Donna, uh, B. Win has just won uh, the the uh, Democratic nomination, and uh, the, Democrat, uh, uh, the Democratic Party here is just gearing up for the general election. They're already starting uh, to uh, release ads uh, that have to do with the uh, governor's race, the Senate race. But I'm going to be curious to see what the messaging is that B. Wynn will uh, put out uh, to say why she should be Secretary of State rather than Brad Raffensperger. I mean, she certainly can make a strong case that despite his uh, uh, holding the line against Trump, he is nevertheless a very conservative Secretary of State who, uh, uh, during his uh, campaign, primary campaign, talked about stopping undocumented immigrants from voting. There's none of that going on. He supported all of SB 202. But it's going to be interesting to see how you position that in, in, a, in the bumper sticker kind of way that politicians uh, have to do during campaigns. Yeah, it's uh, going to be interesting. You're right to see what happen- happens. Uh, so far, you know, he has positioned himself as a conservative. Of course, he was. Um, he thought what was going on from the, the, the Trump side of things. But then so far, both sides, the you know, B. Wynn and Raffensperger have had to focus mostly mostly on getting through the primary and getting through the runoff. And so B. Wynn had to introduce herself in her ads and anything she did and letting people know who she was and to separate herself from her the other candidates in the Democratic uh, for the Democratic um, nomination. I mean, for the to become the Democratic person uh, in this in this particular um, race. And then he had he had others to fight off. So now it's time for them to really show us who they are in and for them to look at each other and for us to start seeing ads about the each one of them. So I think it'll be interesting to see what happens on this next phase on everything and and what they will pick up on uh, each person will pick up on the other person when it comes to this. So I think one of the other things we have to remember about the Secretary of State's race is uh, Raffensperger's own party has made the position of the Secretary of State as it pertains to elections mm-hmm. less powerful, less important yeah. uh, anyway. Yeah. And um, I actually think that's the, the bigger issue. It's an interesting race because of all that's happened. But should we have another election like the last? I think there'll be real questions about even a secretary of state who would be willing to stand up, will they be able? Um, thank you for making that point. Um, I want to come back to uh, other election results uh, a little bit in, in a little bit. But before we do that, um, I, I want to talk about this news that we learned of uh, yesterday, um, which, Stephen, is that um, we now know that, uh, that, that the feds, who are looking at potential criminal charges against the slates of fake electors, which um, were, <clears throat> excuse me, picked in, I think, seven states, including Georgia. They submitted their credentials as an electoral slate for Donald Trump to the National Archives. And um, there's been an investigation for some time now, but now the feds have focused uh, in Georgia on at least two of those fake electors, one being Republican Party Chair David Schaefer, the other being a prominent attorney here who uh, is very active in Republican politics, Brad Carver. Um, So this thing is picking up steam, and these two, and perhaps others that we don't know about yet in Georgia, uh, could very well be uh, vulnerable to uh, criminal uh, charges, Stephen. 
Right. And, you know, we've talked on the show, there are a lot of layers of investigations going on here. You've got the January 6th committee, you've got the Fulton County District Attorney's investigation, and kind of the rings of people centered around former President Trump on down. And what we've learned with these subpoenas are kind of the the uh, entry level, you know, most likely to potentially face charges, most likely to be uh, tangibly dealt with crimes is people like uh, Republican Party Chairman David Schaefer, who spearheaded this fake elector plot in Georgia and who's been a central figure in a lot of the false claims about the election in Georgia and also a central figure in the failed attempts to uh, overthrow Governor Brian Kemp and Brad Raffensperger and other Republican incumbents. But, uh, you know, it is a crime to give false documents to uh, government officials and things. And so these false slate of elector lists that was submitted to the National Archives is something that definitely there's a lot of interest in. We've also seen reporting um, from campaign emails and other things that this fake elector plot was done at state capitals with a bit of secrecy. And so if this was something that was on the up and up and something legit, you, there wouldn't be emails about deceiving people about booking rooms and getting through security and things. And so, you know, this is kind of the next level of fallout from the larger uh, investigation that's been going on. Yeah, I think, Margaret, it's important to point out that it, the subpoenas in this case are federal. But as Stephen points out, uh, Fonnie Willis uh, is uh, no doubt presenting uh, evidence to her special grand jury about the behavior of not just Schaefer and Brad Carver, but Burt Jones, the Republican lieutenant governor candidate, uh, Brandon Beach, a longtime state Republican senator uh, who for many years was considered a moderate part of that uh, fake elector slate. So they're all vulnerable in one way or the other. But what I'd love to ask you to uh, talk about a little bit here, Margaret, is um, and we said this on the show a, a little bit the other day, you know, at, when we first heard about the fake electors in Georgia, it was hard to figure out quite what to make of them. Who got them together? Was this some sort of ad hoc movement by Schaefer and other pro-Trump uh, allies of his? And of course, what we've learned in the January 6th hearings is, in fact, it, these were organized by John Eastman, the president's attorney, whose scheme to have Mike Pence uh, reject the Biden electors and instead see, perhaps seat the Trump elect or, or validate the Trump electors in seven states. This was a organized plot, and we now know, uh, based on, on, uh, on uh, evidence from the committee the other day, that Donald Trump played a role specifically in this as well. Margaret? Yeah, it seems like that there was a, you know, a legal uh, brain, a legal HQ that was in Washington, right, that was, was trying to figure out by any means necessary a way to legitimate um, Trump continuing in office. But, of course, John Eastman doesn't have a granular knowledge of the way that the Georgia GOP works and who, the who's who of of the Georgia Republican Party. And when you read through the names, the 16 uh, fake electors, they really are a who's who of, of Georgia Republican politics. And they are deeply embedded in, across across our 159 counties. You know, we have a small business owner from Camden County who was part of Kemp's finance committee um, when he was running for governor. We have people who were part of uh, Kelly Leffler's um, you know, sort of honorary co-chairs of, of her campaign as well. We have people from Pierce County, from Camden County, from um, from Coffee County, from Greater Atlanta, Cobb, and and also the you know the the elite of, of the Republican Party leadership. So this was um, perhaps a. I mean, there's still so much that we don't know. But but when a state party uh, um, uh, leadership has um, has a command from from the Trump White House. And they have the either the ideological certainty of of their um, of their thoughts and their beliefs, or they're just caught up in the fever pitch of what was um, the post November third, twenty twenty America. Um, regardless of their motivations, they they now seem to be getting in deeper and deeper legal trouble. Donna, I'm, a spokesman for Burt Jones, uh, said that that his his candidate, Burt Jones, 
hasn't received anything from the FBI yet, but, quote, will certainly fulfill his civic duty should it be necessary. Donna? Yeah, so Burt Jones certainly running for lieutenant governor right now. This is, and it's interesting that all of this is now coming out just as things are really heating up for all the races leading up to November. Uh, and that, that this is something that really, this whole secrecy thing has really been kind of in the, on the back burner in a lot of people's minds because we have, you know, heard the focus with the DA Fonnie Willis with what she's doing, the, the uh, January 6th committee, which actually can only make it policy recommendations after things. This could actually, with the Justice Department, involve criminal charges uh, against these people who are in Georgia, who we um, we know, and as everyone has said, are very embedded in what, what goes on in the state. And then we've got one of them who is prominent because he's running for lieutenant governor. Um, you know, they have not talked about it. I had um, Burt Jones, Senator Burt Jones, on lawmakers, tried to get him to talk about things. He just avoids talking about it. The fact that, that it's now coming out in emails, that uh, emails are coming out that they were told to be secret about it, to, you know, come in and, and into the Capitol and ask for the lawmakers, who the uh, senators involved and those kinds of things. I think there's still a lot to all of this that we're going to find out. And I think it's going to be very interesting. And, and as I said, it comes at a time when we're le- leading right up to the election. Bill, you know, this is, uh, I think, as Stephen pointed out, kind of confusing, too. So let's just, uh, you know, make, make sure that we... We say this. We're talking uh, in this situation. We've just been discussing about the U.S. Justice Department investigating these fake electors. We've got this committee thing going on in Washington. We've got a local uh, investigation with the D.A., but this is the United States Justice Department. And I I think it's important to remember a couple things first. And I know this will shock the panel and all of your listeners, but David Schaefer refuses to answer questions about it. As Donna points out, Burt Jones refuses to answer questions about it. Brandon Beach, everyone whose name's on that list doesn't want to talk about it. And I've been trying to understand this because it's so confusing, but I, I, I do believe that part of why this is going to be such a big deal is that a charge that, when you, when you really think about this, talk to people, the charge that seems most likely to be able for prosecutors to be able to prove is conspiracy in all of this. Because in a conspiracy, you don't have to actually commit the crime. You just have to plan together with others to try to commit it. And that in and of itself is a crime. So to me, a bunch of people meeting in secret in the basement of the Capitol to undermine the election and talk about it and keep it a secret, I'm no lawyer, and I'm sure we can get one on the show, but that sounds an awful lot like conspiracy to me. And we're going to watch how uh, that unfolds. Uh, one last item before we take a break on this, uh, Stephen. Uh, you know, I can't help but think about what David Schaefer's arc would have been like if, in fact, he had won his race for lieutenant governor. He was he was the leading candidate in that race, a state senator. He runs for lieutenant governor. He's upset. Uh, by Jeff Duncan, which was one of the most uh, shocking outcomes of that election. And and it put him in a very different position. And, and so, again, while this is pure speculation, you can't help but wonder what happened to David Schaefer when he suddenly no longer had the kind of place in the party or in state government that gave him uh, power and credibility and how that might have led him into this conspiracy. Well, Given all the evidence we've seen, it's also entirely possible he would have used his position as lieutenant governor to give credence and legitimacy to some of these false claims, and maybe we would have had our own Arizona on our hands if he was oh, the well, number two in the state point. Senate. I mean, there, oh, that's there, by, a great by all point. accounts, I mean, by all accounts, Schaefer has spread false claims about the election, about reporting on the election. Uh, he's pushed the 2,000 mules conspiracy video. And yeah. so having that person as the number, two, you know, the, the leader of the state Senate and the number two in the state, we could have had a much different outcome. And really, that's the biggest takeaway of these hearings is that if it weren't for a few people who stood to their guns, and stood by the rule of law and how elections work, we would have had a very, very different outcome heading into January 6th. 
Stephen, no pun intended, I think your observation trumped mine when it comes to what might have happened with David Schaefer if he'd been elected lieutenant governor. Let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way. There are some election results that um, I'd really like to make sure we get to. We didn't get to them on our show yesterday, but they're really worth talking about uh, today. So I'll be asking the panel about those in just a couple minutes, and we'll have a lot more on Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Donna Lowry, Kevin Riley, Stephen Fowler, and Margaret Coker on today's Political Rewind. Margaret, I want to start with you, if I may, and want to address a, a race you've got down there in the first district uh, that we didn't talk about on this show. Um, we now have a Democratic nominee for the first district congressional seat, Wade Herring, running against, a, a, a pop, I think, fair to say, a popular Republican incumbent, Buddy Carter. Um, on our show earlier this week, Adam Van Brimmer suggested that Wade Herring probably had a better chance of being a, 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 a tough candidate for Buddy Carter to take on than the other candidate running in that race. Um, and now Wade Herring has emerged as the uh, nominee. But this is still Buddy Carter. This is still a Republican district, right? I mean, it's going to be hard for a Democrat, no matter how uh, good Wade Herring may be, to try to win that seat. Well, let me um, tell the, your, your um, listeners around the state a little bit about these two personalities. Wade Herring is a longtime um, corporate lawyer in uh, our, our most um, preeminent white shoe firm here in Savannah. He was born and raised in Macon, Georgia. Um, Buddy Carter, it was the former mayor of Pooler, and he, of course, was born and raised in Georgia. And these two men who are, um, you know, just demographically, they are are uh, middle-aged white men. They both belong to the same downtown Methodist church here in Savannah. They actually, their families sat across the aisle from each other um, in, in separate pews, but across the aisle from each other for years and years. And so these are hmm. two men who have a certain, um, a certain overlap if we're talking about identity politics in the first district. But they, they have clearly come down on on very different sides uh, when it comes to major policies that concern Georgians. And Wade Herring's family actually moved their pews in church after January 6th because, um, because Buddy Carter's stance, and he was one of the, the Georgia legislative leaders who, who voted against the certification of the Electoral College results. So in some cases, this is going to be an incredibly dramatic race. These are two men who've known each other for a very long time, who have um, very different stances, as I've said. And in the first district, um, there are many people, Republicans and Democrats alike, who, who think of Buddy Carter as, um, as a stained politician because of his views on January 6th and the vote that he took on January 6th. And so, you know, Stacey Abrams and the top of the ticket, they've been spending a lot of time here in the first district and across coastal Georgia, because according to their strategy, every vote will matter. You know, and every vote that <laughs> Stacey Abrams can turn Democrat here, um, it's, there's a likelihood that, that Wade Herring can also get that same vote. And maybe some more moderate Republican uh, voters who think that Buddy Carter really is um, not the man that they once knew because of his views on January 6th. Uh, Stephen, that said, this is a district that elected Jack Kingston, the conservative Republican, numerous times, who ended up in in the Trump camp, uh, really a very, very passionate Trump uh, guy back in 2016. It elected Jack Kingston repeatedly. It elects Buddy Carter over again. Um, so it nevertheless, we have always said, and maybe Margaret makes an interesting point that we should watch this race more closely, that really, after, especially after the most recent redistricting, the second district in southwest Georgia may be the only real swing district in the state, but it'll be interesting to watch that first district contest. 
Absolutely. And I mean, the uh, the other interesting thing, you know, our Benjamin Payne in Savannah did some reporting around the Democratic primary. And the first place vote getter, uh, Joyce Griggs, who lost the runoff, actually had a lot of questionable campaign finance reports and other things and really didn't raise much money. And so an, an interesting story to follow up on is kind of how she almost won. And then with this shortened four week runoff, it was a pretty decisive uh, victory for Herring and really almost every other candidate. But to the point of the second district, I mean, the second district, I've long said, is probably the most important congressional race in Georgia, not only because it's the one that's only re- the only one that's remotely competitive, but because you can tell a lot about the party's successes and the party's strategies by looking at what they're doing in southwest Georgia. Sanford Bishop is on the vulnerable list and is getting a lot of air support from national Democrats. Stacey Abrams and Raphael Warnock have spent a ton of time down there trying to energize the Black Belt and also to pick off rural farmers with a lot of their rural policies. But also with voters, Republican voters picking Chris West, they've got a hometown, homegrown candidate that really is the first legitimate candidate Sanford Bishop has faced in a long time. And with a tough national environment, how they choose to message and run down there, because Sanford does have a lot of crossover appeal, could prove how successful Republicans across the state could be. It's going to be really interesting to watch that race. I agree with you. Both of those races down there. Donna, because people in North Georgia who've been around for a while know that you were the top education reporter in the state for many, many years over at 11 Alive, Channel 11. Um, I want to talk to you about a different election result that got, got some attention but deserves more. The Cherokee County School Board race um, was fascinating because we, we know that for um, some time there was a lot of heated rhetoric, a lot of angry parents showing up at school board meetings in Cherokee County. They were uh, fired up about concerns about teaching of critical race theory, about teaching about transgender uh, 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 children. And and a national PAC, the 1776 Project, a right-wing PAC, actually put together a slate of school board candidates in Cherokee County. Every single one of them, either in the general election or the runoff, were defeated, which seemed to me to be a victory for local uh, politics and maybe will cool things down a bit in Cherokee. Yeah. So, Bill, we want to talk. You, you're, you're right about Cherokee, but this is actually bigger than this. And uh, as you know, I recently went to the Georgia School Boards Association conference to, and down in Savannah, and this was a, a major issue talking about it. So this National Political Action Committee, the 1776 Project PASH, went after school board seats, yes, in Cherokee, but also in Coweta, in Bryan counties. Right. And in the end, as of this week, lost in each county on the slate of people that they went after. The 1776 Project, it poured big money into these races. They did not win one seat. They have said they, their purpose is to take over local school boards. And they talk about losing faith in the school systems. That's why they are aiming to try to gain control, and they work at the school board level. They don't like what some of them consider government schools, and they want to be able to teach their own ideology. And an opponent, of course, called this, you know, this big attack on education. There was a big pushback. They targeted these conservative, faith-based communities. That's why it's believed that Cherokee and Coweta and a few in Bryan counties were in particular. Um, they're against, as you mentioned, critical race theory in schools, some other things. One of the interesting things is when you go to their website, the first thing that pops up is a message allowing anyone to report a school for promoting critical race mm-hmm. theory. And it asks for the name of the school. It asks for the email address of the person who's um, putting in the name. And one of those who lost in Coweta County, interestingly enough, lost in the runoff this week is Linda Mink. Now, she is a current school board member. She has admitted that she was at the January 6th insurrection. She bragged about it on social media. 
She's been very unapologetic about it. Uh, despite calls from people to have her taken from the school board, she uh, removed from the school board, resigned before the election. She did not. She stayed. But then on Tuesday, her opponent, Rob DeBose, he won by a whopping 70.5%, which tells you, first of all, that there was this enormous pushback because they lost in all of the areas, all of their whole slate lost. But then the main thing that I always say to people after recovering education for so many years is that it's the people close to you on the ballot that you should care about, that those school board races are crucial. Kevin? Bill, I really would uh, suggest to all your listeners, uh, Maureen Downey, a really good column mm-hmm. today uh, at AJC.com and, and in, in the uh, printed version of the newspaper. And she, she talks about this movement by set the 1776 Project and what they've been doing and says um, it has become the 2022 <laughs> version of the communist hiding under your bed, seeking to indoctrinate our children and force us into bread lines and Mao jackets. Um, so I, uh, I think Maureen hits the nail on the head and she examines uh, these issues with a lot of sophistication. Um, so let's continue that theme of people that did not win uh, in uh, Tuesday night's runoff elections. Uh, Stephen, you were out covering the runoffs and you filed a piece uh, which uh, uh, told us that once again, Donald Trump lost uh, all the races that he made endorsements in. Um, and I guess the question is, as popular as Trump remains, I suspect that if the AJC were to take a poll tomorrow and ask people uh, what they think of Donald Trump, Republicans would still overwhelmingly say he's their top, he, they love him. Uh, but he doesn't seem to have a whole lot of clout when it comes to endorsing candidates in Georgia, Stephen. Well, I mean, it, it all goes back to the 2020 election, which we seem to be never, <laughs> never ceasing talking about and things. But the runoffs, I, I think one byproduct of Senate Bill 202 is that runoffs are four weeks instead of nine weeks. So you get the most dedicated voters showing up. You also get the ones that are probably the most informed about these races. And, uh, you know, it's a smaller turnout. And so what you saw overwhelmingly was voters picking the ones that really, truly, honestly, in both of those races were the more Trumpy candidates, even though Trump didn't endorse them. You know, he lost the endorsement race, but almost to a T, every Republican candidate that has won at the congressional level or statewide level is very strongly aligned with Trump's ideals. And so what we're seeing is voters being able to differentiate between Donald Trump, the person, and Donald Trump's endorsements, and Donald Trump's policies and ideologies. And so they feel, in Georgia in particular, that they have a better sense of who's advancing his policies than who Trump may pick from Mar-a-Lago. Margaret? Back to the, back to the first district. Um, Buddy Carter was not primaried, unlike many other people in the state of Georgia, but Trump has endorsed him. So add Buddy Carter Mm -hmm. to the list of Trump-endorsed candidates running this fall. And, you know, Republicans in the 1st District, again, have a a love-hate relationship with the former president. There are many people who are fed up um, with Trump and with the idea that there are um, his his group of Republicans who are trying to – trying to orchestrate election outcomes from above instead of having real grassroots um, campaigns for Georgians to elect their their officials. So again, will the first district be competitive as a result? I think that there are a um, significant group of Republicans in the first district who will not vote for Buddy Carter. And the the Trump endorsement is part of that. I think there are also, um, and, and so, Every vote that is not given to Buddy Carter, um, even if it doesn't go to Wade Herring, our Democratic challenger, um, that, that's another way in which I think the um, uh, Herring's campaign is going to think about when they're strategizing about how to win. Yeah, I, I, so, you know, Stephen, I want to pick up on something that you just said, too, uh, about the fact that the candidates who did win, even without the Trump endorsement on the Republican side, are still Trumpy in their philosophy. Um, and, and it does say something about the uh, continuing importance of Trump in uh, Republican politics. Kevin, uh, I was kind of astonished 
after listening to the testimony the other day of Arizona Speaker of the House, Rusty Bauer, who was one of those Republicans who held the line against Trump when Trump said, you've got to change the results of the Arizona presidential race. I won it. It was fraud that got uh, Biden over the finish line. Rusty Bauer was very compelling and passionate, said he believes in democracy. He didn't want to win by cheating. His gravely ill daughter, who has since passed away, was subjected to harassment, uh, as was his wife and the rest of his family, when people protested outside his house. They they post, they came through with a sound truck saying he was a pedophile. And yet, Kevin, Rusty Bauer said that given the choice in 2024, he would vote to reelect one more time Donald Trump. That, to me, says a lot about Trump and his pervasive influence he continues to have on Republicans. I, I agree with you, Bill. I think that we are not it's a very difficult dynamic to understand. And I, I think Stephen made a great point uh, when he when he said that his there seems to be some people taking, uh, I don't know if you would call it solace or joy in the idea that his endorsed candidates lost. But that does not mean that these Republicans are somehow turning into anti-Trump or the parties on to a different course. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, Vernon Jones lost. I mean, he doesn't even live in the district. He, I mean, I know there are many people uh, in Georgia who are hoping this is the last we hear from Vernon, but I think that's certainly unlikely. Um, so it's it's just a strange it's a strange time, and I'm not sure these dynamics will be entirely clear until uh, we wake up uh, in November. And, and know what happens then. Yeah. Stephen, last word before the break. Well, you know, I, it's not surprising that a Republican would vote for a Republican presidential candidate. I mean, you know, uh, you know, think about it. If the choice is between Joe Biden and Donald Trump again, most Republicans would probably vote for a Republican presidential nominee that even does 20 percent of what they want versus a Democrat that would probably get them zero what they want. And so, I mean, it's the same thing with you know, President Biden's numbers are underwater in just about every state and every way you could imagine. But he's probably going to get a lot of Democratic votes if he's the presidential nominee because partisanship rules all. OK, Stephen Fowler gets the last word in this segment of the show. When we come back, I want to turn to some issues in the uh, U.S. Senate race. We'll do that in just a moment. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. By the way, the jolt points out this morning that uh, we haven't talked about, and I'll just mention it briefly now, uh, that uh, David Ralston had a huge night on Tuesday night. Uh, His candidates won 96% of the races they were engaged in. It just shows you that uh, Speaker Ralston continues to be a a formidable force in state politics. Uh, Kevin, uh, let's talk a little about the gas tax. Uh, President Biden has now announced he is asking for a freeze, a three-month freeze on uh, the federal gas tax. It's an 18-cent tax. And um, uh, Raphael Warnock is celebrating this because Warnock has been very outspoken in saying we need this, people deserve relief, uh, and uh, this is one way to give it to them. But it's controversial. And there are many Democrats who think it's the wrong thing to do, in part because the question is, what does it really accomplish? Kevin? Well, I think it's absolutely true. I mean, 18 cents, uh, which is kind of surprising that it's that low, uh, the federal gas tax, but that's a whole other conversation. Uh, Look, the president is in trouble. He can't really do anything about gas prices, let's just be honest. But he is, he ends up being responsible for them, and there's no question the Republicans have been very effective beating that drum. I think that he, the president has almost no choice but to look and do everything he can to send the message he's aware of Americans uh, suffering under inflation. He's willing to do all he can. I mean, can you imagine him 
calling a press conference and declaring that eliminating the gas tax isn't worth the trouble. I mean, that would be about the stupidest political thing he could do. All right, Margaret, I want to place it. In 2008, uh, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama competing for the Democratic nomination for president, uh, John McCain on the Republican side, Clinton and McCain called at that time for suspension of the federal gas tax, which was, I think, 30 cents at at that point. Uh, Barack Obama said, what a terrible mistake. And I want to play you some sound that, uh, from uh, Obama at a big, big uh, Democratic event talking about that. I know that we're having a debate right now about the gas tax holiday. I know how brutal this is on folks right now. But for us to suggest that 30 cents a day for three months is real relief, that that's a real energy policy, means that we are not tackling the problem that has to be tackled. So, Margaret, uh, Kevin's right. You can't be the president, really. Of course, Obama won the nomination uh, opposing the, the gas tax cut. But, you know, Biden is in a corner on this. Yeah, and and I think that there could be um, a long debate about whether I mean what in terms of the global economy is is um, President Biden's fault. The two overlaps that I would remind people about from 2008 until not now, 2008 is when we had the global financial crisis. Um, world oil prices went up to about I think if I remember 140 dollars um, uh, per barrel by in the spring, and then collapsed to 40 dollars by by the fall. You know, there are things that America is is the number one superpower in the world, but there are things that America just cannot control. Joe Biden is facing a recession that um, is a result of several things, right? Um, COVID, the the global pandemic, but also there were four years of, of our previous president and his economic policies are also coming home to roost. So it's it's um, the the fate of midterm elections that the sitting president um, accumulates all of the toxics uh, that are running through the American body politic, and um, you know the the falls the falls going to be uh, probably not very um, not very satisfactory to to the Democratic Party as a result. Uh, Donna and Stephen, though, let's look at this as a, pure, as a purely political issue. Uh, Raphael Warnock is uh, has been uh, embracing. Um, uh, policies that he believes will resonate with Georgians who are really worried about how much money uh, it's costing them to to live every day. So he supports this uh, freeze in the gas tax. He wants to cut the price of insulin, which now is in in a bill that Susan Collins has introduced. So he's looking at bread and butter issues and sees them as important to uh, getting uh, 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 reelected in the fall. Yeah. And I think that he he wants to make sure that people understand this is where he is when it comes to all of those things. It makes sense that he would focus on the things that people close um, people who aren't paying attention to the whole politics care about. And that is what, you know, the things they deal with every day, the gas tax and insulin and those kinds of things. Um, it, it also you know, so uh, overall, the Biden administration is going against its own focus, which has been to reduce the amount of gas usage in this country to help with the climate problem, to focus more on making sure people are buying electric vehicles and those kinds of things. And to reduce the gas tax means that people may actually end up buying more gas because they are focusing on the fact that it's cheaper, so they will continue to buy gas. So that messes up the whole supply and demand issue when it comes to this. So um, it's it's a real tough one, but I think Warnock will, you know, he's got to focus on the issues that he is he feels are important and he's, he's going to stick with it. And, um, and we'll just have to see what happens. Steven? Yeah, I mean, you know, all they say all politics are local, but really everything's nationalized. You know, the, you're, when you're looking at who you're going to vote for, Senator, or when you look at who you're going to vote for governor, you're looking at what's most directly affecting you. And right now it's gas prices, it's inflation, it's other things that, you know, aren't the shiny objects that campaigns may like to roll out with press releases or things like that. And so what you've seen from Warnock both in his past election and also this election 
is really focusing on, you know, the kind of bread and butter kitchen table issues that Georgians are actually talking about and why you see Stacey Abrams releasing policy platforms and things that are still wonky like she wants, but address the everyday issues. Because at the end of the day, somebody's probably going to be more motivated to vote based on how much it's going to cost them to fill a tank of gas than it is on some esoteric policy about health care or, you know, the economy or things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, good point. Um, all right. I want to get one very quick last item because we're running out of time. Uh, Kevin, today, uh, the Georgia Democrats are going to make a pitch to uh, the DNC uh, about why Georgia should be bumped up in the uh, uh, 2024 uh, primary uh, uh, calendar. They want to get a place pretty close to the front. You know, right now, Iowa and Nevada have early caucuses. And then, of course, New Hampshire is the first primary state. But Georgia believes that it's time for a southern state uh, with a diverse population to get a say early on. And, Kevin, it's going to be fascinating to see whether uh, our emergence as a genuine purple state might encourage the uh, DNC to uh, make that calendar change. Yeah, I think we're going to have this uh, choice. Does it make sense to put Georgia early because uh, it's much more crucial and a better uh, temperature check of the of the way a national vote might go? Or do you want to wait uh, to be later uh, with a chance to be a kingmaker? It's always a tough choice. Well, it's going to be fun to watch how that plays out. We're not going to see an answer to that anytime soon, but uh, it'll be fun to watch uh, what happens there. Um, All right, that's it. Completely out of time for today's show. Margaret Coker, thank you so much for joining us from Savannah, thecurrentga.org. Donna Lowry with your new show, Lawmakers Beyond the Dome, coming up next month. Stephen Fowler, uh, Battleground Ballot Box, plus your work on GPB Radio and our websites. And Kevin Riley, the editor of the AJC, doing just a great job covering politics in uh, Georgia these days. Thank you all for being here. We're back again with a new show tomorrow. We haven't talked about the gun compromise in the Senate yet. Tomorrow, we're really going to dig into that with our panel. I'm Bill Nygut. Until tomorrow, please take care and stay healthy. Bye, everybody.